Well, we use the word hope in English in a lot of different ways. Uh, it's, it's almost really become marginalized because we use it in so many different contexts. We'll say things like, you know, I hope it doesn't rain. Or I hope I get the job. Or we might say, oh, I hope this is a good movie. Or I hope my team wins the game. Or, you know, if you've ever been pulled over, I hope I don't get a speeding ticket. You know? <laughs> or some people might, I hope he likes me or I hope she likes me. Some people might think, I hope he doesn't preach a long sermon. Anybody? Right? Good luck. Yeah, that's right. Um, so we kind of overuse this word hope. But in the Bible, the word hope, like a, a lot of biblical words, has a more precise meaning. And when the recipients of the book of Hebrews that we've been studying found themselves in a tough situation, they needed something more than just sort of a casual, everyday, marginalized hope. They needed real hope. They needed the kind of hope that Peter, for example, talked about in 1 Peter when he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What is a living hope? What does that mean? Well, in the original language, the Greek word translated living here is a participle that comes from the Greek word zoe, or zoe, meaning life. Now, zoe is a pretty meaningful word to our family because that happens to be the name of our granddaughter, who is full of life. Um, when you look at little Zoe, who's two days shy of 15 months old today, you see a life filled with promise and potential and hope. She's unencumbered by all the stresses and heartaches of life. Each new day is filled with wonder and adventure and joys and smiles and laughter and reading lots of books, which is her thing right now. She loves to bring a book to you and read and she'll get through about one page and then she wants to put it down and pick up another book. Uh, but I mean, sure, there are like any 15-month-old isolated moments of tears or frustration, like when she really doesn't want to take a nap, let's say, or maybe when the dogs bark unexpectedly. But overall, her life is filled with hope. Zoe, life. And the hope that we have in Christ, as Peter describes it here, is a living hope. It's all-encompassing. It's a hope that defines every fabric of our day-to-day -day life, or at least it should. We've been going through the book of Hebrews and talking about how to trust God in trying times and how to have an unshakable faith. You know, there's 13 chapters in Hebrews in our English Bible. We've gone through about half of it. Um, and last time we were in chapter 6, and before we leave chapter 6, I want to go back and zero in on two uh, key verses that we uh, touched on last time. You know, chapter 6, if you recall, I know we took a break from this series for a Thanksgiving message, but what we looked at in chapter 6 last time was the Abrahamic promise, where the writer took us all the way back 2,000 years before Christ to a time when God had made a promise to Abraham and it reminded us that that promise had impact for us today, too. It's, it's universal and global in its 
scope. And in verse 18 of Hebrews chapter 6, he said that God's promise represents a refuge to which we should flee and lay hold of the hope set before us. In other words, by looking back at this promise, we can move forward. You know, there are two ways to look at the past. On the one hand, often the past holds painful memories and experiences that can be crippling if we dwell on them. Maybe that's why the Apostle Paul said he wanted to forget those things which are behind and press on. But at the same time, our past also provides a record of God's faithfulness and provision and watch care and goodness in our life. And in the case of the Abrahamic promise, these are universal global blessings that each one of us, if you know the Lord Jesus, will experience. And so the writer of Hebrews says, we have a hope that's set before us, even in the midst of difficult trials. And that hope, as we shall see this morning, is the anchor of our souls. Our hope is in the Lord, is what he says. So I want us to take a look at the last two verses of Hebrews chapter 6. I know they were kind of part of our focus last week, but I want to zero in on it and, and take a look at five characteristics of real hope. So verse 19 says, This hope we have. This hope we have. Now, in the original text, this hope, as you see there in English, is actually one word in Greek, and it's a, it's a pronoun. It's just this, and it refers back to the hope uh, that the writer mentioned in the previous verse. So let's go back to verse 18, where he said that we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us, as I mentioned a moment ago. That's what he's talking about when he says this hope, the hope that is set before us, this hope. So hope is the Greek word elpis, E-L-I-P-I-S is the way we would transliterate it into English letters. It's used 54 times in the New Testament. What's really interesting, what I found interesting about this word, is if you know much about the Greek language, and we look at a lot of different key words when they're relevant uh, in our messages here at Plum Creek, but if you know anything about the Greek language, often a particular Greek word is translated using multiple English words. Now, that's the reason if you do a simple English concordance search for a word, you're not really finding out much information because you might look up one word and it's actually several different words all translated you know, with that one word in, in English. But what's unique about hope is it's used 54 times and every time in every translation, it's always translated the same. Always hope. With one little exception in King James Version, one of the 54 is translated faith. I don't know why they did that. Faith and hope are completely different words, but for some reason in one verse, the King James chose to translate elpis as faith. But that's significant. That's significant. The translation of, of hope, elpis, is rock steady, like kind of the expectation that it represents. And, and that's the meaning of this word, expectation or expectancy, hope. See, real hope is not wishful thinking. It's a rock-solid expectation of something specific, maybe something with details, or in general, a rock-solid expectancy, a general sense that God is on our side and that things are under control and that God's got this. And the writer describes this hope as having five characteristics. If we go back to verse 19, 
He, first of all, he talks about the hope being the anchor of the soul. I talked about this last week, but it bears, or last time, but it bears repeating. What does he mean by the anchor of the soul? Anchor is often used as a metaphor, both today and in ancient literature, uh, in addition to just being a literal anchor. But this is the only time in the Bible the word anchor is used metaphorically. Um, you know, as I mentioned last time, in the first century, sailors would carry their ship's anchor using a small boat, a skiff, and deposit it on the shore so that the big ship wouldn't drift away as the waves beat against it. In fact, you see the word uh, used that way in Acts chapter 27. We don't have to turn there, but you remember when uh, Paul was on the boat and he was eventually shipwrecked at Malta? And, and Acts chapter 27, verse 29, or verse 30 actually says, As the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea under the pretense of putting out anchors from the prow. Because that's how you did it. You let down a skiff, you took the anchor, took it as far away from the boat as you could to set it down on firm uh, ground. So the idea the writer is trying to convey when he says our hope is the anchor of our soul is that when Jesus Christ entered heaven after his ascension, he took our hope of future reward with him. He took our security with him. The hope that Jesus Christ has planted firmly in heaven should serve as an anchor for our lives, our souls. We're going to come back to that word soul here in a second. Uh, but it's, it's, our, it's our anchor. In fact, I don't know if you remember, but back in chapter 2, the writer said in Hebrews, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard lest we drift away. See, without hope, you're like a, a wheel spinning off its axis, just subject to the ebb and flow of whatever experiences you're facing. But when we have hope, it, we have an anchor. And our anchor rests firmly in God's presence in heaven. So five characteristics of hope. The first thing he wants us to see is that our hope, real hope, is undivided. It's undivided. Uh, again, in verse 19, I want us to focus on that word soul. What do we mean by having an undivided hope? Well, the word soul, we just sang about it, uh, it refers to the whole life. Often in English, we see the word soul and we think the, the immaterial part of man. We often distinguish between body and soul. And indeed, in the Bible, sometimes the context is using it that way too. The word soul in Greek is psuche. It's where we get the word like psychology. Uh, and it can refer to the immaterial part of man that will go to heaven or hell when you die, depending on whether you know the Lord Jesus or not. But it, it also, in fact, more often refers to just the whole being. So when we sang a moment ago, it is well with my soul, we weren't necessarily making a statement about, I know I'm going to go to heaven. That's part of it. That's part of it. But what we were saying is, in all my being, I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay. God is with me. God is good. I, God's got this. I, I'm okay. It is well with my life, with my soul. And that's the way the word is used here. The word soul refers to the whole life. In other words, our hope, which serves as our anchor, cannot be divided up into categories, right? The way it is in a worldly sense. Worldly hope says, so, you know, I've got hope that this is going to be a good job and I'll have it for a long time. But over here, I'm really not hopeful about, you know, 
what's going on in this family relationship. Or I'm, I'm hopeful over here about one thing, but over here I'm, I'm really not. I'm kind of pessimistic. That's the way we think of hope. We don't think of it as all-encompassing and undivided. We divide it into categories. Physical hope. I'm hopeful I'm going to get better, but I'm not exactly hopeful about my emotional state, right? So we, we divide it, but real hope that serves as the anchor of our soul, of our life, is all-encompassing. It's not compartmentalized. It's undivided, complete, whole. It affects our whole life. The person with real hope is a, has a steadying anchor in everything that he does. So he says real hope is undivided. But then he says un, real hope is undistracted. Undistracted. You know, the world's hope is easily distracted. It's fleeting. It comes and goes. It's tied to our circumstances. One minute, we're confident, smiling, looking forward to some future enjoyment that's on our minds, but suddenly something happens that distracts us, makes us lose focus, and our hope fades from our minds. You know, if you think of it in terms of a sports metaphor, like I mentioned at the outset, we use the word hope in a very marginalized way in English, but you know, you, you might be sitting watching the Thanksgiving Day football game, and someone comes through and says, uh, hey, uh, uh, looks like the Cowboys are winning. Are they going to win? And you say, I hope so. And then they come back an hour later and they're down by two touchdowns. So that was a pretty fleeting hope. But real hope is not like that. Real hope is undistracted. Notice what else the writer says here in verse 19. He says, it's sure. It's sure. Another interesting word in Greek. What is the word sure? Well, it's the word asphalos. Asphalos. It's used five times in the New Testament. It's where we get the English word asphalt, right? Meaning to make firm or solid. You know, twice in our 28 years of marriage, we've had the opportunity to pave a driveway with asphalt. Both times we've lived out in the country, had a dirt driveway, and, and we said, ah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pave this driveway to make it more firm and and stable. You know, if you have a paved driveway, it's, it's easier for the kids to ride the bike or to play basketball or, you know, shovel snow, right? Um, that's the idea here behind Osphalus. The writer says that our hope is undisturbed by outward influences. Uh, it's sure. When you have a, a, a real hope, you can stay focused. You know, I used to play a lot of basketball when I was young. I played in high school. And, and you know, I've had the occasion at different times, the, the, the setting might be out on a dirt court. You know, you play out in the country or at a camp or somewhere, and there's just a hoop someone put up out on a field. And, and you know, playing basketball on dirt is not nearly as steady and convenient as on flat surface, on concrete or asphalt. When you're playing on dirt, first of all, you, gotta, you might come to a quick stop and slide. You might step on a rock or an uneven part and turn an ankle. you got to watch when you're dribbling that the ball doesn't hit some divot or something else and bounce a different way than you were expecting. But when you're on asphalt or concrete, you don't worry about any of that. You're focused on the defender, on getting an open shot, grabbing a rebound. You don't ever think about, oh, is the ground going to be firm when I come down from that jump shot or I cut to make a break, right? It's firm. And that's the way the writer describes 
describes our hope. It's, it's undistracted. Not, it's not easily distracted because we can, we can focus. The writer is going to go on in Hebrews to challenge his readers. We've looked at this verse a lot and we'll eventually get there in earnest, but it's a key verse in Hebrews in chapter 12 when he says, We should lay aside every weight and the sin which easily ensnares us and run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. See, real hope has as its attention and focus the anchor of our soul that's been deposited in heaven, Jesus. We don't have to worry about our footing and the things around us and our setting. We're not distracted. That's the reason Paul said in Colossians, set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. We are citizens of heaven. We're just passing through here. And yet our tendency, if we're honest, is to become obsessed with the here and the now. Life struggles and circumstances and all of the things that make up day-to-day life. The things that those with a living hope, Zoe, don't worry about. Like our little Zoe. She doesn't have to worry about those things. She's got someone taking care of her. Someone's going to feed her. Someone's going to clothe her and so forth. And that's kind of the way it is with our spiritual life or the way it should be. In Romans, Paul used it this way. It's interesting. He uses the word hope five times, either the noun or the verb form in this, these two verses in Romans. He says, we were saved in this hope. We were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope, right? For why does one still hope for what he sees? If we hope for what we do not see, that's what we eagerly wait for with perseverance. Our hope is undistracted. It's, it's not disturbed by outward influences. If we could see and, and realize our hope all the time, we wouldn't need hope, right? What makes hope, kind of like faith, valuable is that it's there for us when we can't see it. And that's when we really need it. It's eternal. It's undistracted by all that's around us. Reminds me of the story that of the believer who died and went to heaven, and he's having a conversation with angel shortly after he gets with an angel shortly after he gets to heaven, and he says to the angel, "Man, can you believe how crazy things are on earth?" And the angel goes, "Wow, I had no idea. Things are pretty quiet up here. <laughs> you know that's that's the way God is. You know, we're all worried about things down here." If we can transport in our mind's eye ourselves to where our citizenship really is, it's all pretty quiet. It's pretty quiet up here. Um, a verse that's meant a lot to me through the years, uh, going back to my college days, is uh, David's Psalm 27. And, uh, you know, it came across my attention when I was going through a particularly rough time in college, and it's just sort of tracked with me ever since. And anytime I find myself at a low point, I pull out this verse where David said, I would have lost heart unless I had believed I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Real hope is undivided and all-encompassing and undistracted, but it's also undiscouraged. There's another word that he uses here in the same verse uh, and it's the word steadfast. Because we're so often easily distracted, we end up discouraged. That's what happens. You take your eyes off the Lord, you get discouraged. You know, we might be upbeat for a while, but our fleeting hope gives way to thoughts of stressful, troubling things, and we get discouraged. Wouldn't it be great if our hope 
could never be discouraged? Well, that's exactly the case with real hope. The world's hope gets discouraged, but our hope doesn't. The word steadfast, you know, the words sure and steadfast in English might seem like sort of a superfluous repetition, like the author's just being flowery. But remember, there's never, ever anything superfluous about God's word. Every jot and tittle matters. The word translated steadfast is the Greek word bebaios. Bebaios, it means reliable, trustworthy, guaranteed. In some ways, it's similar to asphales, sure, steadfast and sure, bebaios, asphales, but there's slightly different nuances. Remember, the word sure carried the idea of secure and not easily distracted. This word has more to do with the effect of being distracted. See? Because we're not distracted, we know we can count on it. We, we have a guarantee. Just like the promise on which our hope is based, the, the Abrahamic promise, we have a guaranteed hope. In fact, one lexicon, one Greek dictionary translated bebaios this way, something that can be counted on not to cause disappointment. Something that can be counted on not to cause disappointment. That's what our hope is. It's steadfast. Real hope, unlike the world's hope, will never discourage us. Don't get me wrong. We still find ourselves discouraged sometimes because we live in the flesh. We're not always walking in the Spirit. We get our eyes off the Lord any number of reasons. But it's not our hope that's discouraging us. Um, you know, a few moments ago, we looked at that famous passage in Hebrews 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and how we should run with endurance the race that is set before us. Well, the verse immediately following that, those first two verses reminds us that if we do keep our minds on Christ, we will not be discouraged. Look at what he says. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. That's Christ. Why? Lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls, in your life. Right? This has always been an important principle for God's people to remember. Keep your eyes and thoughts on the Lord and you won't be discouraged. Now, going all the way back 700 years before Christ, Isaiah told the people of God, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. It's hard to be discouraged when you're focused on the Lord and trusting in him. So real hope is undivided, it's undistracted, it's undiscouraged, but it's also undaunted. You know, because the English word hope has become so marginalized and redefined as something more akin to a wish, you know, things like, you know, I wish things would get better instead of I hope and know that they will get better. Because of that, our worldly hope is a timid kind of hope, isn't it? It easily cowers in the face of difficult circumstances. And this is precisely the issue at hand with the original readers in Hebrews. I know we've talked about it a lot, but remember, they were in 67 AD facing incredible persecution from Nero. And to be a Christian often meant to, to give up your freedoms and your life in some cases. And, and they were, because of the pressures of persecution, were contemplating disassociating with Christianity and kind of reverting back to Judaism. It has nothing to do with their eternal destiny. These were children of God, make no mistake. But like many Christians through the centuries, 
sometimes their faith are wavers, and, and they were contemplating that. And the author is, is saying you need to hang on. Don't be timid. Hang on. Be strong. Be courageous. You know, I, I hate to say it, but I'm pretty sure my hope, and, and probably yours too, is sometimes timid. And the, reminder, the writer reminds us that real hope is undaunted. It's bold. It's courageous. Notice the last part of verse 19. Both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil. So the imagery here takes us back to the tabernacle and the temple with its curtain shutting off the most holy place. That little room symbolized the very presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant was in there, and the, the people were not allowed to enter. I mean, even touching the Ark could bring instant death if you were not qualified, and measures were taken to make sure that if the high priest died while in the Holy of Holies once a, once a year, his body could be retrieved without anyone else going into that place. The Holy of Holies brought fear to the minds of God's people. It was the essence of who God is. It represented His presence. Real hope doesn't bring fear anymore because a new and living way has been opened up for us. Because of our real hope, we can boldly march right into God's presence. That's what the author of Hebrews says. Real hope is not exhausted by what it sees of earthly possibilities. It reaches to the very presence of God. Are you beginning to see how hope and faith and just praying for God to work miracles are all intertwined? when we really begin to understand the hope that we have in Christ. This is what the writer wanted his original readers to understand. Don't give that up too readily. To kind of help you picture this in your mind, I want to take you back and show you some diagrams, some mock-ups of the tabernacle and the temple through the ages. We looked at this two weeks ago on Wednesday, which is why it was fresh in my mind, and I thought it would be instructive for us this morning as well. So first of all, here's... The size of the temples. This is a American football field with the end zones. And so that's kind of our frame of reference. Most of us kind of can picture a football field in our minds. Here's the old tabernacle in the wilderness. Then when Solomon built his temple, of course, it was much bigger, right? And then you had Herod's temple, which was the temple in the first century in Jesus' day until the Romans destroyed it in 70 AD. But look at this. One day, when Christ comes back and takes the throne in the kingdom, the millennial temple, as described in Ezekiel 40 to 48, is going to be massive. So if we start with the tabernacle, right here was that dividing wall between the holy place and the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And, and, and you dared not go in there, right? And then in Solomon's temple, same thing. Bigger, but you still had a wall, a veil, if you will. If we zoom in on the Holy of Holies, you can see it there. It was a curtain. And the high priest, again, on the Day of Atonement would go in there. But other than that, you didn't go in there. And what happened at Christ's death? That veil was torn in two, opened up. That's why the writer of Hebrews says we have a new and living way now. We have access. We can come boldly before uh, the throne of grace. Herod's temple had the same thing. Here's a picture of Herod's temple on the Temple Mount, and there's the, uh, the Holy of Holies. And there, if we zoom in on just the temple, um, uh, you know, again, looking at the comparisons, Solomon's temple, Herod was much prouder. I mean, he wanted this to be a real big thing. Solomon's temple was big in its own right, but Herod's temple was much bigger. 
But here you have, once again, this dividing wall, this veil that separated in Herod's time and in the original recipients of Hebrews, their day, they understood very well. And what he's trying to get them to see is that Jesus has entered the presence behind the veil. The real hope is not exhausted by what it sees of, of earthly problems and predicaments. It, it, it can go right to the very presence of God. Earlier in chapter 4, we looked at how the writer said we should boldly come to the throne of grace. See, real hope is undaunted. We don't have anything to be afraid of. James, the Lord's brother, said we should you know, bring our, if we need wisdom, we should act of God and not even worry about being shamed or you know, even if we ask for the same thing over and over again. God, that's what God's there for. You know? In chapter 10, he's going to put it this way. As I quoted a moment ago, we have boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. See, real hope is undaunted. Undaunted. So it's undivided, undistracted, undiscouraged, undivided. And finally, in verse 20, we see that it's undeserving. And that's what makes the Christian's hope so special. It's not something we earned or obtained or conjured up. On our own. It's not something we can take credit for. Look at me, I'm an optimistic person. You know, that's not it at all. Our hope, which is the anchor of our soul, was purchased for us at great cost and provided to us free of charge by the blood of Christ. Chapter 6 closes with this verse. Talking again about Jesus, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus. Even Jesus. Real hope is not something we can purchase or earn or ever be good enough to have. We can't make any claim to it in and of ourselves. It's a pure and simple free gift of grace. Paid for by the substitutionary death of Christ. In other words, Christ paid our price. He took our place. It should have been us paying for our own sins on the cross, but he paid them on our behalf as our ransoms, the way Paul put it. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the, the, man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. See, the Bible says that we were without hope until Christ paid our price, right? At that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God. But in Christ, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ who died and rose again for your sins, in Christ, you have a hope laid up in heaven. Look at the way Paul put it in Colossians 1. Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. The only way... To appropriate Christ's payment and obtain real hope, the hope the writer of Hebrews has been talking about, is by believing the gospel. In Ephesians 1, Paul says, In him, Christ, you also, after you heard the word of the truth, trusted the gospel of your salvation. You and, and, and he's then the guarantee of the purchased promise, the purchased redemption. The only way to have that hope is by faith in Christ. It's the reason Paul said in Romans 15, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. The only way to get it, by faith. By faith. That you may abound in hope 
through the power of the Holy Spirit. In Colossians 1.27, Christ is described as our hope of glory. And that's who he is. He's the anchor of our souls and our hope of glory. So the question then is, where is your hope today? The first century believers that the writer of Hebrews is talking to needed more than a casual cliche kind of hope. They needed more than a hang in there. They needed real, lasting hope. What about you? Where is your hope? The writer is going to come back to this notion again in chapter 10 when he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. Is faithful. Real hope is, is undivided. It's total and all-encompassing. It affects every area of our being. It's not compartmentalized. Real hope is undistracted. It cannot be disturbed by outward influences. It's undiscouraged. It, it can be counted on not to cause disappointment. It's never going to let you down. It's undaunted. It's bold and courageous. It has immediate access to the creator of the universe through our intercessor and our Savior and His Son, Jesus Christ. And it's undeserving. It's a precious gift available to anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ alone. And if you're here today and you've not done it, let me encourage you that the only way to gain eternal life and to be made right with a holy God is through faith alone in Christ alone. You can't do it by walking an aisle, signing a card, going through some classes, or making some personal pledge of allegiance or promise or commitment. Eternal salvation is not a bilateral contract where we sit down and negotiate our way into God's good grace. We simply receive it. It's a unilateral gift. God is the giver. We're the receiver. And you can do that even right now. You don't have to make a show of it. In the quietness of your own heart, you can say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I need a Savior and I'm going to trust in you today as my only hope of eternal life. Not hope like, well, maybe this will get me there, but guarantee the anchor of my soul. So what's the takeaway? Well, the takeaway is pretty simple from these two verses. Anchor your hope to the Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for uh, just the, uh, the hope that we have, Lord, we pray that we would really begin to embrace it, not just as a, a timid, whimsical, fleeting thing, but as a, a confidence that cannot be shaken. Lord, help us to recognize that your Son, our Savior, really is our hope of glory, and that while we abide the, the, the stresses and difficulties and trials of this life, we have a better day coming. Uh, and we know and we look forward to that, Lord. In the meantime, Lord, strengthen our faith. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we close.